Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, open it to Malachi chapter 2 is where we left off last week. We're working through the last book of the Old Testament named after its author, the prophet Malachi. We'll pick up on the last verse of chapter 2, verse 17, and then read through the first five verses of chapter 3. If you're with us for the first time today, we're really glad you're here. I'd love for you to have your own copy of God's Word in your lap. You can use one of the Bibles that you'll find in the front rack in front of you. Our custom here, the vast majority of the time, is just to work through books of the Bible. And we find ourselves in the middle of this Old Testament prophet, the last words from God to his people in the Old Testament before about 400 years of silence, before Jesus comes in the flesh on the scene at the beginning of the Gospels. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Disappointment is a powerful, powerful emotion Externally, I think it can often be quiet, but internally it's, it's very, very loud. Disappointment can obscure reality. It can lie to us. It can skew our perspective and send us into deep and dark and misguided places. That's the setting here at the end of Malachi 2. If you remember, Malachi is a word from the prophet to God, to the people from God, as they are in captivity under the Persian Empire. They're back in the promised land of Israel. They're back in Jerusalem, at least a portion of them. They have rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the city. But the promises of God towards the end of the Old Testament, in places like Habakkuk and Zephaniah, about a glory that would exceed the previous glory of Israel have not been fully realized. And as a result, the people of God are disappointed in God, and they're voicing their complaint to God. But as we'll read and as we'll dig into this text and find out, their disappointment, the result of their disappointment wasn't because of any lack in God or on his part, but because of really sin and idolatry on their part and misplaced man-centered expectations, which caused them to misunderstand God and his ways. The text this morning is, is really all about how God deals with his, point, with his people and how he says that he will refine his people, and make them right so that they can worship him rightly. Well, with that, let's, let's read this text, starting in verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, and then we'll work our way through it, and we'll end with some reflections, some truths that I see in this text. And then after the message, we have the, just the great privilege as a local church to see two of our members be baptized and publicly profess their faith in Jesus. Listen to the word of God, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, let's pray and pray for me that God would help me communicate so that we might understand this text. Lord, help us. Thank you for your word. Your, your word says about your word that the law of God, the word of the Lord is pure, reviving the soul. Revive us as we think through this text this morning. Your word is sufficient. It's true. It carries with it all authority. It's breathed out by you. So help us, Lord, to humble ourselves under your word. Show us Jesus in this text. Make us more like your son. Encourage us. And Lord, as we've already prayed several times for our friends that may be here this morning that don't yet know you, Lord, open their eyes. Show them the beauty of the good news of the gospel so that they might put their hope and faith in Jesus. Do all these things, Lord. We pray for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about this text, I think we can break it down into two sections. The first really is just one verse, verse 17, and it's the people's accusation against God. And then into chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5 is God's response to their accusation. So let's look again at what the people are accusing God of in verse 17. He says, the prophet is speaking here to the people, and he's saying that you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now that's that's not a good thing to be said about you, if you were wondering, that you are making God tired because of what you're saying. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And remember, all of Malachi is framed by these, these scenes where the people are disputing with the Lord over something that he's accusing them of. And in this instance, they're saying back to the prophet, how have we wearied him? And the prophet answers them by saying, and this is what the people are wrongly saying about God. This is the expression of their disappointment in God. And they have really two complaints against God. And they say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. So the first thing they're accusing God of is, is really, they're accusing God of a kind of blasphemy of his own character. They're saying, God, you are calling evil good, and you're actually delighting in evil. And what, where's that coming from? Well, the people, this is probably coming from 
leaders within the people of God in Jerusalem that are frustrated over the unrighteousness and the spiritual apathy and lethargy of the people that are not paying attention to God. They're not worshiping Him as they should. And so these people now are wrongly interpreting God's patience and not punishing those who are doing evil as God actually endorsing their evil. And so the people are so frustrated and they think that God is not coming through as he said he would and they're actually accusing God of calling evil good and saying that he delights in the wickedness that is going on in the people of God. And then here's their second charge, the second half of verse 17. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so not only are they frustrated with what's going on within the people of Israel and the lack of holiness, and they're misinterpreting that and accusing God of calling evil good, but they're saying, God, you know, we're, we're in the middle. We're surrounded by our enemies. In fact, we're still under the thumb of this wicked Persian empire. And you've promised that your people would triumph. You've promised your good to us. You've promised that the glory of Israel would exceed the glory of it in the past. And, and it doesn't seem to be coming to pass. And so they're questioning, where, where is this sovereign God who's promised justice for his people? So Israel is profoundly disappointed in God. They think that God has failed them. They think that God doesn't care. They think that God isn't listening. And they're even taking it one step further. They are they're impugning the character of God, saying that you're calling evil good, and you're asleep at the wheel, and you don't care about justice. In fact, maybe they're even wondering, is God even in control at all? Just a quick application before we move on to, to the Lord's response to them. I mean, we, we read this thousands of years later as it's recorded for us. And we, I think we all can realize and understand where we are prone to misunderstand God as well. We're prone to misunderstand His purposes and His timing. How do you, just think about this, just put this question in your heart as we work through this text. Given your current circumstances and situation that clearly for all of us are, are not all that we want them to be, that's everybody, by the way. We live in a broken world. This, is, this world is not as it should be. We're going to as it should be, but the present life that we're in now is not as it should be. How might you be prone to accuse God or be disappointed in God because of your current situation? And now let's look in chapter 3 and verse 1, the Lord's response. It is clear and decisive. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the first thing God says is that I'm going to send a messenger, and he's going to prepare a way for me when I come into my temple. So who is this referring to? There's this messenger coming that's going to prepare the way before the Lord comes into his temple. We'll read here in just a moment to restore the purity of his people. Who is this messenger? Well, with the benefit of looking back in time and now the benefit of having the New Testament interpret for us and fulfill for us the Old Testament, we know that this is John the Baptist. In fact, if you're in Malachi, just flip one book over to Matthew and we can read and see how the New Testament writers, specifically Matthew, applies this prophecy about this 
messenger that will come to prepare the way for the Lord to come to his temple, how it applies to John the Baptist. So let me, let me read for you from Matthew chapter 3, a little, bit of, a little bit about the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, I'll read this quickly, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region were about the Jordan and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So John's having this ministry where he's proclaiming the imminence of God coming in the kingdom of God and people are confessing their sins. Verse 7 but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them, this is not a church growth strategy according to the American church. Listen to what he says. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, just, just a little pause here. Just, just contrast that with just kind of church culture in America. I'm not saying we, need to, we don't have the ministry of John the Baptist necessarily quite specifically like he does in redemptive history, but he cares about the glory of God not making everybody happy. Oh, man, you brood of, you pit of snakes. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That would have been offensive to an ethnic Jew. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Man, there's some, see, I'm tempted to preach some other messages within this message, but I'm not. I'm going to stay disciplined. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize, he's speaking about Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wow. So then go to Matthew chapter 11, and we read clearly how then later on the, the gospel writer Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, clearly not only alludes, he doesn't leave us in doubt as to whether or not what we just read in Malachi is applying to John the Baptist. He tells us it clearly is. So Matthew chapter 11, lots has happened. John the Baptist has continued to preach, and he actually preached against Herod, the king, the ruler of the people, preached against his immorality because he was in an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And so that preaching got him thrown into prison and is about to get him beheaded. He, he does die. He gets his head severed because of his preaching to Herod. And listen to chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, speaking of John the Baptist, when John heard in prison, so he's in prison for preaching righteousness to Herod, about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
Now, friends, that's, I, to me, that's one of the most encouraging verses in all of the Bible. Because here you have John the Baptist, who has been raised up by God to prepare the way. He is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophesy in Malachi, prophecy in Malachi about preaching about Jesus coming. He's done it, and it's got him thrown in prison. And he's just, he's not losing his faith here, but he's giving us a picture of the wrestling of faith. And he says to his disciples, hey, go and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, the resolved, certain John the Baptist is wrestling with his faith in prison saying, Jesus, are you really the one? I think that's really, really, really encouraging. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus there is quoting an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah about the coming of the servant of God, meaning Jesus. And he says the whole prophecy, except for the part where he says that the Captive shall go free. And so he tells, he's basically telling John, yes, I'm the one, but you're not going to be set free from this earthly prison. You're going to die. But the captivity from sin, you will be set free from. Verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And now Jesus, about John the Baptist, is quoting what we just read in Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so we see here that this clearly, back to Malachi now, back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that we know who this messenger is. He's this incredibly important figure, John the Baptist, who comes to preach repentance, who wrestled with doubt to some degree as he's waiting in prison to die and to be beheaded. And Jesus is the one. He's the Lord's servant. He's the one. He's the the one who's coming into the temple. And all of this comes to fulfillment But now let's bring ourselves back into 400 years before all of that happened to the people of God hearing this word from God, this prophecy about God, which wouldn't find its fulfillment for another 400 some years. A messenger's coming and he's going to prepare the way for me. Back to verse 2 of Malachi chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears For he, speaking about Jesus now prophetically, speaking about this Lord to come into his temple, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And so he says that this 
Lord who's coming, who's being prepared the way for by John the Baptist is coming, and who can stand when he comes. He's like a refiner's fire. And many times when we read Old Testament prophecies, this is an important sort of principle when you're reading Old Testament prophecies, specifically about the coming of Jesus. You have to remember that oftentimes the Old Testament prophets are looking at the coming of the Lord from a great distance. And it's been compared to, I think, I think this is a helpful analogy, it's like looking at a, a mountain chain from miles and miles away. And there may be two peaks that seem very close together, but as you get close to the mountain chain, you realize that there's actually quite a great gap between those two things. And so sometimes the Old Testament prophets, specifically here Malachi, will be speaking about the coming of Jesus. And from a distance, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he will combine the first and second coming of Jesus really in one prophecy. And he's speaking generally about these two things that are separated from a great distance in our day together. So he's coming, he's saying Jesus is coming and he's going to refine and he's going to, and we'll read here in just a moment in verse four and five, he's going to judge his people. And we know that Jesus in his first coming has come, has come like a lamb. And that refining process begins as Jesus comes and preaches the gospel and then lays down his life and rises from the grave in victory over sin, death, and the grave and sends his Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, the refining and the purifying, the fulfillment of this prophecy about the Lord coming to his temple and refining his purifying his people is still ongoing in the life of his people even now. It's happening now. And we see from this text that that refining and purifying is, is what the mission of God is in sending Jesus. He is coming to purify, to purge, to refine his people through like a fire, a fuller's soap. Now just contrast this with, with often the, the view of Christianity in our culture that, it, that sees Jesus as a kind of add-on that sort of makes your life better, a kind of 2.0 version of you. But that's in direct contrast with what the prophet is speaking about, what will be the scene when he comes. He says, who can endure the day of his coming? He, he doesn't say, which I think is the mindset of most people in a kind of religious fallen culture. It's not, oh, oh my gosh, yeah, there, there's this fall that happened a long time ago in the garden, and sure, that's holding you back from becoming all that you can be. But here, let me, let me remove all of those obstacles for you and help you achieve the best version of you. Let me sort of add my lordship on as a kind of garnish on the top of your life. That's not the picture of the coming of the Lord. No, he says that he sits over us as a refiner and he puts us under or over the heat. And the picture is here is that it's, it says as a as a metal worker who's melting down impure metals underneath extreme heat, waiting for the impurities to bubble up to the top of the melted metal so that he might skim it off and make a pure version of that metal for himself. Friends, heat is painful. And a fuller's soap, it's like he's got a wire brushed, bristling, scrubbing on us, getting the dirt out of us. And he scrubs on us as, a, as, a, as, as somebody washing a dirty garment. 
And that's what Jesus will do when he comes, the prophet says to his people. So they, they are concerned about God, not caring about sin. And the Lord is responding through the prophet, oh, I care about it. And I'm coming, and I will purify my people. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, then he says then, and what's the result of all this? It's not just purity for purity's sake, but it's purity so that we, so that the people of God might be able to worship him rightly. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So if you notice that in verses 2 and 3, when he talked about this purification that would happen, that it would happen to the sons of Levi, the priests. But then we hear in verse 4 that this purification actually it makes its way down to all of the people because then he says that the offering, the result of this will be that all of Judah, all of Jerusalem, all of the people of God will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So in a sense, he's kind of looking back to Israel's past glory under Moses and David, which actually serves to point us forward to the picture of when Christ will come and fully and finally sanctify his people. And so the first thing God tells him is, is I'm coming, and I'm coming to purify you. And then in verse 5, he says, I'm coming to judge those who do not fear me. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. So he's going to purify his people so that they might worship him rightly. But then there's a second thing that he promises to do. Because remember, they said, where's the God of justice? So he's really answering both of their accusations. He's already answered the first accusation. They said, you don't care about evil. In fact, you're calling evil good. And he's saying, no, I care about it. I'm coming to purge it from my people so they might rightly worship me. And then the second charge was, you don't care about justice. Our enemies are triumphing over us. Wicked people are prospering. Are you ever going to bring justice? And he says in verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. I think that's the key. They do not fear me, which then gives rise to all of these other forms of rebellion. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We're going to look at this verse a little bit more in just a moment, but just a word there. It says at the beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2, they, they question, where's the God of justice? And then God says, oh, I'm coming. I will bring justice. And I'll bring justice against those who do not bear my image. They don't live out. There's no, there's no fruit of salvation in their lives. There's no true conversion in them. And they, as a result, they don't bear my image. They don't, they don't act justly. They, 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 they take advantage. They, they live for their own pleasures. And they swear falsely and they oppress people that are underneath them, hired workers, the widow and the fatherless. And they thrust aside the sojourner. Just a word about what I think is a, an important discussion going on in this, at least our stream of the church right now is this idea of social justice and how involved Christians and Christian churches should be. And what do we mean by social justice? When we look at all the the ills of our society, 
when we look at people that are in difficult situations or we look at ethnic and racial uh, sin in, 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 in our culture and in the church and we look here at the widow and the fatherless and those thrust aside as a, as a sojourner or people that are oppressed uh, in hired workers being oppressed and not being given their fair wages. These are all issues of social justice. We look at the taking of the lives of unborn. We see a world around us that is filled with injustices. And there's a conversation, I think a, a good conversation, going on in the church today, thinking about how involved should a, a Christian in a local church be involved in trying to implement God's justice in this world. And there are kind of two competing camps. And let me just say that, that I think that one of the dangers of this conversation about justice and social justice is that Christians can wrongly interpret things that we do as the gospel itself, as if taking care of, of the poor or fighting for the unborn or, or advocating for sojourners or, or fighting for the widow and the fatherless and the orphan is itself the gospel. It's not. It's not the gospel. But the other side wants to argue that we should just focus on the gospel and those things will take care of themselves. And I think that what's going on here in the prophet Malachi is a kind of balance. He's saying that if you, if you have been justified by God, if, if your wickedness has been atoned for by God through His Son, it will produce a heart in you that will want to care for people who are suffering injustice. I think there's a balance there. The things that we do are not the gospel themselves, but they are fruits of our conversion. And all Christians are called in various ways to image the gospel, to be a picture of the redemption that has happened to them. So like we read in Ephesians chapter 2, he has saved us for the good works that he created us for so that we might be a kind of picture of the very gospel that saved us. So I think Christians should care deeply about people who are the victims of the sins that are mentioned in verse 5. Realizing that we were sinners and God saved us from our sin so that we might care for and carry Christ to people who need him. So three truths as we conclude. Three things that we can apply from this text to our lives. What does an, an obscure section of the Old Testament have to do with us today in 2019? I think everything. First truth. I think this text teaches us that God is in control of all things, even to the smallest detail. God is in control of all things, even to the smallest detail. Anytime I read an Old Testament prophecy that speaks about the coming or the future fulfillment, usually centered on the ministry of Christ, my mind always goes to this truth because I want to zoom out for a moment. I want to, we're in the text, and I want to zoom up to a kind of bird's eye view and realize that when I read something like that verse in verse 1 about how he's saying a messenger's coming, and then I 
flip ahead to Matthew and I see that it's fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist, I want to zoom out and realize that the Bible gives us a picture of a God who is completely and utterly sovereign over all of human history. What he says will come to pass comes to pass. Every jot and tittle, every aspect, the big things, the small things. And how does that apply to me, friends? When we realize that God is in control of all things, we realize that even the minute details of my life that are out of order, like the life of Israel was in Malachi, then I realize that God is not distant. He's not uninvolved. He does not have a deaf ear, but he has purposes for everything that I'm experiencing in this moment. In fact, the life of Israel in the Old Testament is meant to be, amongst many other things, I'm not just boiling it all down to this, but the life of Israel, God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament, is a kind of picture of the Christian life. And so God, as Israel is dealing with captivity and their own sin and all these things that are tragedy, All of it is underneath the sovereign good hand of God and he's promised a time when he will come and he will purge sin and all of its consequences from his people so that they can rightly worship him. So whatever we're facing in this moment in our day, we can realize that God is in utter control of it. I'm gonna, I've been, I love old confessions of the faith. I think that they're helpful. I think that if you, um, I think you, should go to a church. Right now you're at a church, but if in the future, I think you should go to a church that is really clear about what they believe. I think that uh, there are historic confessions of faith that are really, really helpful, and they clarify the Christian life. And I think it's really, really important what we believe. And um, there's this, probably maybe my favorite in the history of the church, is this uh, confession of faith written by these English Baptist Puritans in the 1600s, in fact, 1689, and it's called the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and they wrote about the providence of God of all, over all things. In fact, um, in a, I'm going to start a, a men's theology hour, a little study on Wednesday mornings, and we're just going to look at this confession of faith and apply it to our lives and think about what it means in, in the 21st century, not this Wednesday, but, but next Wednesday. We're from 7 to 8, any men... And the sound of my voice are welcome to come, and we're going to just dig through the, this, this old confession of faith, the kind of men's theology hour. We're going to read it uh, and, and just apply it to our lives. But listen to what these old English Puritans said about the providence of God. Chapter 5, Divine Providence, paragraph 1. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge. Infallible is a word that means unable to be wrong. Perfect. True. His infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. In other words, God is not making things up as he goes. His providence, and don't believe it just because some English Puritans wrote it. All these things are based on Scripture. They're basing this on Isaiah 46 where the prophet says, God's speaking through the prophet. He says, I declare the end from the beginning. 
His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Listen to paragraph four. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan, this is so important, includes even the first fall and every other sinful action of both angels and humans. Okay, now you're thinking, well, Brad, how do those two things fit together? Are you you ready for the answer? I have no earthly idea. But I do know that the Bible says in Romans 11.36 that his ways are inscrutable. They are past finding out. And I would rather see a God in the Bible that I cannot fully explain than a God in the Bible that must abide by all of my human reasoning. So he, his sovereign plan in some way includes even the first fall, that's Adam and Eve in the garden, and every other sinful action of both angels and humans. God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges. I mean, in other ways, I mean, that's a, that, there's a lot that can be said there. In, in other ways, arranges and governs, sinf, governs sinful actions. Now, in the understatement of the century, they go on to say, through a complex arrangement of methods, you think? He governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes, friends. (laughs) Friends, I don't know how that works, but it does. Yet, he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creatures and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. Again, we ask, how can that be? I don't know. But we see it in the Bible, and we can fasten ourselves to that truth. Sin is wicked. God is sovereign. How those two things fit together, we don't understand. But we can know that he is good, and nothing is outside of his control. Chapter, or verse, paragraph 5. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations in the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So what, listen to this sentence and live on this sentence. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. And that's not just, again, that's not because a bunch of English Puritans said it. They're saying that because the Bible says that, because Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, Paul says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so when I read about John the Baptist being 
prophesied about 400 years and then it coming to fulfillment to the nth degree. My mind zooms out into the global grand sovereignty of God and then it zooms back in to my very life that is disordered like every other person's in this room and causes me to sometimes wonder and be disappointed whether or not God is involved. He is, friends. He is. Which leads us to the second truth. God is more concerned with our enduring purity than temporary prosperity. God, I mean, come on. God clearly could have just zapped the Persians and immediately restored Israel to its glory, but he doesn't. He takes time. He's not concerned about their temporary prosperity. He's more concerned about their enduring purity. And this is, this is, this is a picture of sanctification, isn't it? The patience and the long-suffering and the seeming slowness that he dealt with Israel in the Old Testament is a picture of how God deals with us as he refines us. He saves us. He, this is what happens in your salvation. You are dead. Listen to me. Listen to me. You're dead in your sins. Your heart is dead. That's what the Bible is clear. Ephesians 2, other places, you're dead. Colossians 2, you're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And we're by objects like the rest of mankind. We're by nature objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're dead in our sins. And when God saves a person, this is what he does. He comes, he causes the good news of the gospel. He causes the good news that God the Son became a man and lived a perfect life, laying down his perfection on the cross to bear his wrath in your place. And because Jesus is not just a good and perfect man, because he's the infinitely holy God, Jesus' righteousness is more than enough, more than sufficient to satisfy, remove, answer, extinguish the wrath of God on our behalf that is ours. And Jesus extinguishes it. He removes it through his death on the cross, his substitutionary death on the cross. He satisfies God's righteousness and anger and wrath and raises, rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now commands you to repent and believe in him. So you're walking along. You may be very much alive, but your heart is dead. And when God intends to save a person, God makes your dead heart come back to life. God does spiritual heart surgery on you. He takes out your dead heart of stone and he puts in a new heart. He regenerates you. He makes you born again. And now that heart that was once dead and unable to believe had no faith is now made alive, and because it's alive, God has equipped it with faith, and now, where you had no faith, you now have faith. So faith isn't something you bring to the table, it's something God gives you, it's a gift, whereby that new, alive heart looks to God, sees and understands what Jesus has done to reconcile that person to God, and they believe, they turn from trusting in themselves and their own righteousness, and they put their hope and their, all of their hope in what Jesus has done. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian. He makes you alive. He gives you faith. You're alive. 
But have you noticed that you still have to deal with the residual indwelling sin? We went through Romans. Do we need to go through Romans again? Do we got another two years? I mean, come on, what? I mean, we might as well just do it again. I mean, what's going to happen? Either we're just going to do next Sunday or Jesus is going to come back. What's the rush? Let's go through Romans again. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, get me out of here, man. Why do our new hearts still have to deal with sin? Because we are all in this process of sanctification. So God leaves us here. He could kill the Persians and instantly make Israel all that he intends them to be. He could in our salvation fast forward us and all of a sudden just a spiritual kind of beam me up, Scotty, and all of a sudden just make us who we're intended to be. But he doesn't. Why? Because God has purposes in the processes of our slow, rugged sanctification to work through us, to put us on display so that he might use our rugged, slow lives as a picture of his grace to an onlooking world that he's drawing to himself. So the slowness, the reasons that you're disappointed in God right now are very likely things that God is using in your life to put your life on display to an onlooking world. And rather than crying about it like Israel did, we need to cling to God and rejoice in it and trust him that he has good purposes in our sanctification. Let me read you a few verses about this refining fire that God leaves his people in. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. This salvation that he could instantly make complete, he calls us to work it out through the refiner's fire, through the purging, through life with other Christians, through confession of sin, through exhorting and confronting one another, through the difficulties of church life, through discipleship, through sanctification, through a hundred Bible studies, through, through opening his word, through prayer, through repentance. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, you're on the fire. This is part of God's purpose. He's refining you. He's burning off impurities. Romans 8, verse 17, speaking about us being children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're on that refiner's fire. We're being we're being scrubbed with a wire brush of the Holy Spirit. For I consider, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Tyler read for us this morning from Hebrews 12. I won't read it again, but remember what he said. That do not despise the discipline of the Lord. He's treating us as sons. He's putting us on display because he wants to purify his people through the slow process of sanctification so that he might bring glory to himself through their lives. If you're a Christian, you're in that process right now. You are. Whether you realize it or not, you're in that process right now. Are you disappointed with God? If you are, it may be because you have unrealistic, unbiblical expectations of God's designs 
for your rugged, slow, refining, painful, purifying sanctification. Oh, man, that, that is, that's me. I, I, I am a closet whiner. I, I'm, a, I'm a closet whiner. I don't have so much, as, like, you know, the, the Bible says we should have a prayer closet. I have a whining closet. Oh, that God would reorient my idolatrous, sinful disappointments into a fastened appreciation of his purifying, refining fire in my life. Amen? And what's the purpose of all this? That we might present an offering to him for his glory, right? That all this is going to God. He's doing this so that we might be able to make our lives not about us. So friends, it's not about health and wealth. It's not about what God can do for us. It's about what we end up being for his glory. Now, now don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we are saved by his works. I'm not saying that, that, that us presenting an offering. Let's, let's, let's read our text again, verses, verses 3 and 4. It says, Malachi 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So the end, so look, just think about logically what verses 3 and 4 are saying. He's saying that the refining and purifying of his people will result in them bringing offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And so we need to be careful. We need to have a good theological perspective of what the whole Bible says about presenting ourselves to the Lord, these offerings in righteousness. What are they? It's not us with our works so much. It's us clinging to Christ and his work and from having a renewed heart, us then giving our lives away as a sacrifice for him, which then he is glorified with. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that I think explains this tension well. Speaking of Jesus, and it says, For by a single offering, meaning Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to once and for all atone for sins, to remove God's wrath, to satisfy God's justice, to satisfy the requirements of the law. So for by a single offering, his work on the cross, his his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. So, so there's a concept for you. you, you are, if you're a Christian and Jesus' death has been a, and resurrection has been applied to you, if he's made you alive and he's given you the gift of faith, you've 
placed it in Jesus, the Bible says that you have been past tense perfected. You can be no more righteous. You can be no more loved. You can be no more forgiven by God. He has perfected for all time those who are now in the process of being sanctified. In other words, according to the Holy Spirit's logic in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14, the Christian life is a matter of becoming in time who we already are out of time. Do you see that? So those of us that are struggling with our sanctification, fasten yourself to that. Know that you are in a current, a stream, a river of God's unstoppable grace that will bring you all the way home. And use that to fight sin the next time you're standing in front of that computer and you're tempted. Use that to fight. Use God's strength and certainty of his promise towards you not to cause you to fall back into lackadaisicalness, but to lean forward into becoming who you already are. That's the logic of Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might become the firstborn among many brothers. So that means that God foreknew you, he foreloved you, he determined your future destination so that you would be conformed into the image of Jesus. Your Christ-likeness, if you're a Christian, is guaranteed. So fight that fight knowing that that's where you're going. Oh, fight sin with that heart of mine. Fight sin with that, dear friend. And finally... The third truth, he's coming again to judge all those that do not fear him and do not trust in Christ. He comes to purify his people, but not all are his people. Some do not fear him and are outside of Christ. Look at verse 5 again. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Again, he's speaking prophetically about the future ministry of Christ who's coming to to save and to sanctify his people. And for those that do not fear him, he will judge them. I will be a swift witness. I think that's an allusion to the many times in the New Testament where it says that he comes like a thief in the night. Maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, you know, I'm going to live it up a little bit in these years of my life, but eventually I'll get serious about God. Don't bank on the future. Today is the day of salvation. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. That's the root cause of all these classes of sins that he names. They do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So our third truth is that he's coming again to judge all those that do not fear him. And we need to think about fear rightly and biblically. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. This is a healthy, right, biblical fear of God. It's a fear that is not not at odds with God as our Father. He's a good and gracious Father. And as every healthy child has a right fear of the authority of their father, so every child of God has a right fear of God because we know that we must, we must 
be hidden. We must be protected from even his judgment and wrath if we do not obey him. And our only hope is trusting in Christ who does that for us through his death. He bears the wrath of God and he gives us a new heart whereby we can now fight against sin. We can fight against the things that he mentions in verse 5 and we can be instruments of justice for those who are oppressed by these things. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 says this, and I end with this before we see our brother and sister baptized. To all of us that are dealing with disappointment at the seeming slowness and inattentiveness of God, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Let me pray. Lord, we wait for you. We, we want to be chastened by this example of Israel wearying you in the Old Testament, questioning your goodness and your justice. Lord, when we complain... Most often it's evidences of, of a kind of man-centeredness in our lives, that you're not doing things according to our design. Reorient our hearts, God. Remind us that you have good and gracious purposes for your children. You will purify your people. We will bring acceptable offerings to you on that day. And even in this day, we can, we can come cling to Christ. And Lord, for those that are not trusting in you, there will be judgment. So if, Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's, who's postponing getting serious with you, who thinks that they can deal with you according to their own timeline, Lord, turn their hearts from that folly. And may they run to you and may they appropriately fear you and may they trust in what Christ has done and be saved. And I pray all this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.